0: all right, let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to come together to worship, uh, to receive instruction, and to uh, praise you, to see your glory, and to fellowship with each other. Uh, we pray that you'd bless the sermon, Lord, that you would give us clarity, and that you would equip us, Lord, that we would be uh, prepared for the ministry you have for us, and that uh, we would be ready to uh, to participate in spiritual warfare and deliverance. And We thank you for your grace. And amen. All right, so today we are continuing the series we've been doing called the GCF Vision. Uh, the vision or the GCF Vision is a term that we, we use a lot, but we haven't done a thorough teaching on it in a while, at least not since Greg was teaching at RCF at Wright State. Um, so what is the GCF Vision? It's basically our idea is that there's certain aspects of Christianity that God wants Christians to rediscover and to restore. And uh, in this series, we're focusing on five of them. Number one, having a biblically complete understanding of, experience of, and presentation of the gospel. Number two, being grace-based instead of performance-based. Number three, being reformed and charismatic. Number four, understanding the role, the relevance, and the responsibilities of the church. And number five, having a victorious eschatology. And so again, I'm not at all saying that, um, that Christians don't currently do these things, but typically churches will do well in one or two of these areas, but most churches don't have all five of them. Uh, but we believe that this is something that God wants the church to rediscover and restore. And so that's what this series is about. So we've been on point number three, being reformed and charismatic, and uh, we've been on that for quite a while. So we're doing the subsection called the Strengths of Charismatic Churches. Before this one, we talked about the strengths of Reformed Churches. And after this, we'll talk about the synergy and the strengths you get from having uh, both church cultures intertwined. So what do I mean by a charismatic church? There's kind of like five qualities I would think of when like describing charismatic church culture. or What is a charismatic church? Uh, The first one, holding to continuationism rather than cessationism, or believing that the gifts of the Spirit are still for today. They didn't pass with the apostles. Uh, Receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Emphasizing, pursuing, and experiencing the gifts of the Spirit. Participating in spiritual warfare and in deliverance. And having a culture of worship and prayer and expectation. So today, we're kind of continuing last week because we didn't quite get through the whole thing last week. Uh, We're talking about spiritual warfare and deliverance. And uh, this topic kind of deserves a series of its own, well, as a bunch of these do. But for the purpose of this series, this is just an overview. We don't want it to be 122 parts. (laughs) Maybe 22, but not 122. (laughs) So let's do some review Uh, for like five minutes to just cover uh, what we talked about last week. So last week we talked about, we started off by talking about what it means to be demonized. A lot of times when we think about um, having a demon, people use the term possessed. But that's not a biblical term. The Greek word that's used is demonanzai. I'm sorry, I butchered that. But um, but it means to be under the power of a demon. It doesn't give the connotation of possessed. The Greek word isn't the word that means owned. It means, honestly, I think it'd be better translated as demonized. To be under the power of a demon. It, we talked about how it doesn't mean possessed. And it also doesn't mean fully controlled by. A lot of times... Um, Demonic oppression can be somewhat subtle and is not as it's not always as obvious as like the cases you see in Hollywood movies uh, or the the man with the legion in the Bible, where people are screaming and running around, jumping up and down, breaking things everywhere they go, acting insane. That's not the majority of cases where people are demonized. That does happen, but that's not the majority of the cases. So to be demonized, it doesn't mean fully controlled by, which is kind of the connotation you get from possessed. But that's not what the Bible conveys. We also talked about ways demons oppress people when a person's demonized. They amplify a person's struggle against sinful or foolish behavior. You know, we all have struggles to begin with because we're human, but demons amplify those struggles. They add to them. Uh, demons often amplify a person's emotional or mental struggles. We saw this in the case of Saul. Um, you know, an evil spirit from the Lord came to torment Saul. It didn't torment him physically. It was tormenting him emotionally. And it amplified his anger problems. Uh, sometimes evil spirits will cause a person to develop a physical illness. Um, Sometimes it can be causing a person uh, to just have constant intrusive thoughts. And sometimes demons will manifest through a person's body. Uh, We saw this in Jesus' ministry when demons would speak audibly through the people they were indwelling. But it's not always that obvious. Sometimes it's subtle. And I do want to point out two cases in the scripture where we see a more subtle demonic oppression or a more subtle demonization. Let's look at Luke 13, verses 10 through 13. Now, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. Now, it doesn't just say she was sick. It said she had a disabling spirit. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. So this woman had an ongoing sickness that was caused by a demon. But it wasn't super obvious. You know, if she would come into a church in America today, we would probably just tell her, "Uh, Well, I'll pray for you, and hopefully you find a good doctor we would tend to think to ourselves, this isn't what demonic indwelling looks like. She's, her, she's mentally saying, that can't be a demon. But we look for the wrong things. The majority of uh, cases of demonization are more subtle than you know, the Hollywood exorcisms. I also want to take a look at 2 uh, Corinthians I mean, 2 Chronicles 18, verses 19 through 21. And the Lord said, "'Who will entice Ahab, the king of Israel, "'that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead?' "'And one said one thing, and another said another. "'Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, "'saying, I will entice him. "'And the Lord said, By what means?' "'And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit "'in the mouth of all his prophets.' And he said, you will entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. So uh, Ahab had prophets. And those prophets had a lying spirit or a lying demon who was influencing them to lie. But it it didn't look obvious. They didn't appear insane. They weren't like running up and down, jumping off the walls, beating people up. They were just telling Ahab... You will certainly win this war. You will certainly win. Again, a lot of cases of demonization are more subtle than what we expect. Uh, We also talked about, can a Christian be indwelt by demons? Uh, And what I always point out with this question is, the Bible doesn't say or even imply that a Christian cannot have a demon. And to believe without the authority of the Bible... That a christian can't have a demon is a risky assumption to make it is an assumption you know if we were to take up the belief and say well a christian can't have a demon just because they're a christian we're saying that just because we think it when the bible doesn't say it you know that belief could be right or it could be wrong but if it's wrong there's a lot at risk because you're risking Allowing cases of demonization to go unnoticed because you're refusing to be alert to them. That is a risky assumption to have as an assumption. We can't afford to just believe that Christians can't be indwelt by demons unless the Bible teaches that. But I would challenge you to find where the Bible teaches that because it doesn't. The Bible does not teach that a Christian can't have a demon. And then we also looked at another case that may imply that Christians can have demons, but, uh, you know, it's kind of up to interpretation. But uh, in the passage we just looked at with the woman with the disabling spirit, let's continue reading where we ended. We ended in verse 13. Uh, So verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, "'said to the people, "'There are six days in which work ought to be done. "'Come on one of those days and be healed, "'and not on the Sabbath day.' "'Then the Lord answered him, "'You hypocrites! "'Does not each of you on the Sabbath "'untie his ox or his donkey from the manger "'and lead it away to water? "'And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, "'whom Satan bound for 18 years, "'be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day?' So the key term I want to look at here is this woman, a daughter of Abraham. Son or daughter of Abraham is often used to describe a person who has faith in God. And I would compare this to two other passages. John 8.44, Jesus talking to the Pharisees, and these Pharisees were Jews. They were physically descendant from Abraham. Abraham. And he says, you are of your father, the devil. It is your will to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He's a liar and the father of lies. But Jesus didn't say to the Pharisees, you sons of Abraham. You sons of the devil. Because they didn't have faith in God not the kind he wanted them to have. And then let's also look at Galatians 3, verses 6 and 7. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of the faith who are sons of Abraham. So again, this passage might not be conclusive that a believer could be indwelt by a demon, but I think there is implication there. And we also talked briefly about how demons can enter people. All right. So let's move on to today. Um, This is kind of just... So I kind of took the rest of my outline from last week, which I didn't get to finish, and then just added a a bit more stuff to it. Um, So this is kind of just... A small bit of talking about a bunch of small related topics. But, anyways, let's get to it. Uh, Discerning the demonic. So, how can, so there's reason to think that Christians, a Christian could have a demon, but how could you tell? You know, it all seems rather uh, hard to tell because, you know, demons amplify sinful struggles, but we all have sinful struggles. You know, demons can cause sickness, but sicknesses happen naturally. How can you tell when something's demonic or when it's not? I mean, so there's, there's really two ways a person could tell. The first one is discernment of spirits. So we recently talked about the gifts of the spirit mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, and one of them is discernment of spirits. Um, let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. And to another, the ability to distinguish between Spirits to another various kinds of tongues, and to another interpretation of tongues. So what is discernment of spirits? Or what is the ability to distinguish between spirits that the Holy Spirit gives? Uh, It can be, at times, discerning if a person has a demon. It might be discerning what types of demons a person has if they have them. It might be discerning, or the ability to discern, um, how demons are oppressing a person. Or the ability to know that a person does not have a demon. But this is, um, like many of the gifts of the Spirit, knowledge that comes from the Holy Spirit speaking to a person. This is knowledge that God gives you uh, by speaking, typically by speaking to a person in their inner spirit. So this is a gift that we should pray for, because we looked recently at how Paul instructs the Corinthians to pray for the gifts of the Spirit. Christians are supposed to pray for the gifts of the Spirit. Most of the things that God has for us, we should pray for. It's a general pattern in the Bible. So since it would be very useful to have discernment of spirits, we should be praying for it regularly, especially in specific cases where we have a question, you know, is this a demonic struggle or is this a natural struggle? Is this a demonically caused illness or a natural illness? We should pray for discernment on that because God gives discernment. Uh, Another way a person might be able to tell if something is demonically caused is by determining it from evidence. Um, And I do want to say, I don't think there's any solid proof that a struggle or something is definitely demonic or not. This is kind of just guidelines for discerning that, and at the end of the day, we should turn to God for discernment. Uh, But there's a few things. Uh, if If there's a struggle that just doesn't get better regardless of what 's done when it quote unquote logically should have gotten better by now, uh, that might be a, a tell or a sign that it might be demonic you know depression that no matter that never gets better no matter what uh, Feelings of rejection that just never go away, no matter what you do. Addictions that never get better, no matter what the person tries. And in spite of their, um, you know, reading the scripture and getting filled with the spirit and prayer, and no matter what, it just doesn't go away. Or intrusive thoughts that just never go away, and they're always there every day. Uh, So, if there's a struggle that almost seems unnatural Uh, and how it doesn't get better, that may be a sign or a tell that it might be demonic. Or physical illnesses that are there without explanation. Oftentimes, when you go to a doctor and you have a physical illness, they can kind of tell or guess how it came about. But, you know, sometimes there's illnesses, and the doctors just don't know how on earth that person acquired that condition. That may be a tell that an illness could be demonic. Uh, The last tell that I want to mention, or hint, or, um, yeah, tell, hint, is previous occult involvement. So um, the occult is real, and people really do get involved with it, some more subtle than others, you know, even using a Ouija board or trying to tell the future, that's divination, that's a sin, and that's occult involvement. But occult involvement uh, can cause a person to get demonic influence in their life. So none of these are absolute proof that a person definitely has a demon, but there are reasons to suspect that a demonic oppression might be involved. And if we have reason to suspect something might be demonic, we can pray for wisdom about it. Let's look at James 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So there are are human ways to kind of determine the likelihood that something's demonic or not demonic. But at the end of the day, we have to rely on the Holy Spirit. All right, let's talk about receiving deliverance. How does a person, if they do have a demon, receive deliverance? Uh, Well, there's a few things I would recommend. The first one is find someone uh, who would be willing to minister deliverance. And if you're here at GCF, you could talk to one of the elders or anyone on the leadership team, and, uh, and we could you know, plan a meeting for it. And then, so there are certain ways that a person prepares to receive deliverance uh, to be ready for it, and I, I do want to briefly talk about those. Uh, there's kind of four of them that I have, and these would be things that would be going on if you had a meeting to receive deliverance. The first one is forgiveness. Let's look at Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I still forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to 70 times, but up to 77 times. Which, you know, by the way, just in case you don't already know, Jesus isn't giving you an excuse. Once he hits that 78th time, it's over. <laughs> Jesus is saying, you keep on forgiving forever. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents, so that would be millions and millions of dollars, That's a lot, that would be a lot of money in, Uh, Our money. But a slave who owed 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his master commanded that he be sold, along with his wife and children, and all that he had, and repayment be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. By the way, this is kind of unrealistic, or what he's saying. He's not going to repay everything. This was multiple lifetimes worth of earnings. He can't repay it. Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the master of the slave felt compassion, and he released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a 100 denarii. So a hundred days' wages. And he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and he went and threw him in prison until he would pay back what he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came reported to their master all that happened. Then summoning him, his master said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his master, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he would repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. So one of... uh, there's one interpretation of this passage, which I feel like is fairly likely to be an accurate interpretation, that the, the reality that this is speaking to is that unforgiveness opens the door for demons to enter a person. You know, demons torment people. The evil spirit sent to Saul tormented him. The master said, you know, or Jesus said, my father will do the same to you, but the master handed the slave to the tormentors. So again, one of the interpretations that a number of people use for this passage is that unforgiveness can open the door for demonic oppression or for demon enter a person. And I think that's fairly likely. But anyways, forgiveness is always good because God commands it. So forgiveness is the first step to receiving deliverance. If you're walking in unforgiveness and you're not repenting of it, you probably won't receive deliverance. The second step is confession, repentance, and renunciation. You know, since demons may have gained the ground to because of a specific sin, it's wise to confess any known sins and repent of them before receiving deliverance and to also renounce repent of and renounce any participation with the demonic or with the occult. If a person is doing things to allow more demons to enter, it won't do a lot of good to get them cast out. The third thing that I would say is helpful for preparing to receive deliverance is prayer. Prayer helps everything. I'm going to keep saying that until we really get it. Well, no, I'm just going to keep saying that forever. Prayer helps everything. And we need to constantly be aware of that. You should pray that God would give wisdom to those ministering to you. And you should pray that God would use it to set you free from all demonic oppression. And then the last thing I would say is uh, if you're receiving deliverance, receiving it actively. So the word in the Bible for spirit is always this, it's pneuma, it's the same word as the word for breath. And uh, and so when demons exit a person, they leave some way, and I think that's typically through a person's breath. So like breathing out or coughing when a person commands the demons to leave is a way to actively receive it. So receiving deliverance. Let's talk about maintaining deliverance. Let's read Matthew 12, verses 43 through 45. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds the house empty. This is talking about the person who it was indwelling. When it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So it will be with this evil uh, generation. So the potential for demons to reenter a person is there. How can we avoid that? Well, one thing I want to point out is Jesus says it returns to the house and finds it empty. So the first thing we should do is seek to be filled with the Spirit. A person can be a Christian can be more or less filled with the Spirit. That's why Paul gives the command in Ephesians to be being filled with the Spirit. You might be filled with the Spirit a little. You might be very filled with the Spirit. And some days you might hardly be filled with the Spirit at all. But the more filled with the Spirit a person is, the harder it is for demons to enter. Uh, The second one I would say that we should do to maintain deliverance is putting on the armor of God. Let's look at Ephesians 6, verses 11 and 13. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The implication is that if we don't put on the whole armor of God, we might not be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then in verse 13... Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. If I was going to talk about the armor of God, I'd have to do a whole sermon on it. So we're not going to uh, read the passage and really get into it. But it's, you know, these things are real. Truth, righteousness, hope of salvation. These are real things. Uh, The terms of the armor might be symbolic, but they symbolize real things, having faith, using God's word. We need to put on and use the armor of God. Uh, The third thing I would say for maintaining deliverance is living in submission to God. You know, sometimes we open doors for demons by choosing sin, so we can prevent those doors from being opened by choosing to obey. And then lastly, uh, walking in forgiveness. You know, we've looked at how unforgiveness can be a problem. It can be a uh, means for demons to enter a person. But walk in forgiveness. All right, uh, let's talk about ministering deliverance to others. So how does uh, a Christian minister deliverance? God get, we looked at last week how God gives to all Christians authority to cast out demons but what's the biblical pattern for that? How do we do that? Uh, there's three or four things I would say. The first one is that you should pray that God gives you discernment. You know, casting, trying to cast out a demon won't be very useful if the person doesn't actually have a demon. That'll kind of be a bit awkward. So pray for discernment, that God would, you know, give you discernment what's going on in their spirit. The second thing uh, lead the person through preparation. You know, ask them if they have any unforgiveness in their life and uh, encourage them to repent of that and to forgive uh, whoever has wronged them who they haven't forgiven. Uh, Lead them through confession, repentance, and renunciation of any known sins or uh, participation with the occult. And lead them through prayer. Uh, The third thing we do in ministering deliverance to others is persistently command the spirits, out in the name of Jesus. So I want to point something out. Prayer is not the main means for casting out demons. Prayer is not, in the Bible, the main means for casting out demons. In the Bible, the main pattern shown for casting out demons is by word of command, under the authority of Jesus, which he has delegated to us. Let's look at some verses that show this. Let's look at Matthew, 18, Matthew 8, verse 16. That evening they brought to Jesus many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Luke 4, verses 33 through 35. And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Jesus didn't pray to the Father that the demon would come out. Jesus commanded the demon to come out. Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Luke uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 17. And the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Subject means they listen to, they obey. So the 72 were commanding the demons to leave people. They weren't praying to the Father that the demons would leave. They were commanding the demons to leave. I kind of compare this to to sharing the gospel with people. We could pray to the Father that the Father would share the gospel with a person, but he told us to. And he also told us to command demons out of people. Let's look at Acts Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 18. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Then Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So the pattern in the Bible for deliverance is a Christian, and Christians have been delegated the authority of Jesus to cast out demons, commanding the demons to leave in the name of Jesus. That is the biblical pattern of deliverance. And even though deliverance can't happen through other means, um, you know, it, it also says in Acts that uh, because of the anointing of God's Spirit and how strong it was, even handkerchiefs that were touched by Paul or Peter were sometimes brought to people and evil spirits left them. So there's plenty of ways God works deliverance. But the main pattern for it in the Scriptures is by word of command. And when commanding them to leave, we should command them persistently because sometimes... Well, you know, they don't always want to listen. Sometimes they try to buy time. Let's look at Mark chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So Jesus had already told the spirit to leave, but it was trying to buy time. And Jesus asked, what is your name? Uh, And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. But, you know, if you read further, Jesus casts the demon out. But sometimes we have to command persistently. But we have the authority of God. We need to recognize that we've been delegated the authority of God, and we need to use it. Because casting out demons by word of command is the main pattern in the scriptures for deliverance. All right, so that's um, all the talking about deliverance we're going to do. But the title of this sermon is Deliverance and Spiritual Warfare. So I did want to mention two other types of spiritual warfare that Christians should participate in. And I'm not limiting spiritual warfare to just these things, but, uh, you know, these are things that Christians have the ability to do. So the first one is Binding Demons. So when I say binding a demon, I mean restricting their ability to influence a person. Uh, So let's look at one passage uh, that mentions this. Let's look at Matthew 18, verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now there's some, or maybe a good amount of debate over what the correct interpretation of this passage is. But I think the idea that Jesus gives authority to us to bind demons or to restrict them is a fitting interpretation. Uh, it makes sense logically because we have authority over demons to cast them out, so authority to restrict them would make sense because authority is authority. And we also see that Jesus in some sense, did this because he commanded demons not to speak in certain cases. Let's look at uh, Mark 1, verse 34. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. But anyways, this kind of brings up the question, why would there be any use in restricting demons? the activity or influence of a demon by word of command. What would be the point? Why not just cast it out? Um, So there may be times, specifically with unbelievers, where it might not be wise to cast their demons out. We looked at the passage in Matthew uh, where Jesus talks about when the spirit's gone out of a person, uh, it comes back with seven more demons sometimes. When the, the house is empty, it's not filled with the spirit. So a number of people who are you know, fairly experienced in deliverance ministry tend to agree that it's usually not wise to cast demons out of unbelievers because they might end up eventually worse off, which is fair. Um, And in those cases, it might be better to restrict a demon by word of command that it not influence a person. I do want to read one interesting testimony about this uh, from a book called Pigs in the Parlor. So this is uh, Ida Mae Haman's testimony uh, in the part of the book that talks about binding demons. An example of how this works was shown to my wife several years ago. The wife's name is Ida May. Uh, this is not Ida May's wife. So, an example of how this works was shown to my wife several years ago. We were just coming into the knowledge of demon spirits and how to deal with them. She was working in a bank. Once or twice a week, a certain customer came into the bank who used very bad language. He was a very loud and extroverted. Each time he opened his mouth, he punctuated every phrase with profanity and cursed using the name of Jesus. Since my wife had never been exposed to such foul language in all all her life, she was horrified by it. She began to pray and told God, you know that it is not me saying those things, and I do not approve to them. Then God spoke back and said, that is a spirit of blasphemy causing that man to talk like that, and you have power over it. My wife had never attempted anything like this before. Uh, She was acting on the word the Lord had given her, The next time the man came in the bank, he began to curse and blaspheme as usual. She stood a few feet away from him and under her breath began to say, You demon of blasphemy, God has shown me that it is you. I have power over you to bind you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot curse in my presence and take the name of my Savior in vain. Of course, the man heard none of this, but the demon was hearing plenty. The color drained out of his face, and he began to gulp as though something was stuck in his throat. He never said another word of profanity in that bank. From then on, each time this customer came in, she bound the spirits in him, and he could not curse. The other employees noticed the change in his behavior and commented about it, but they had no idea what had taken place. But Satan's power had been bound on earth as it had already been bound in heaven. So you, you can't use this to manipulate people. But what was going on here is, you know, this person, because of demonic influence, when they wouldn't otherwise have such interest in using blasphemy all the time, because of demonic influence, was using blasphemy in like every sentence. And when his demons were bound, he stopped. But we as Christians have authority to bind demons. And there are times where that is, you know, the appropriate thing to do in a situation. Uh, The next form of participation (laughs) in spiritual warfare I want to talk about is intercessory prayer. I said we weren't going to read the passage with the armor of God, but it turns out we are. Let's look at Ephesians 6, verses 13 through 18. and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Now, if you look at the structure, this is mostly a long, run-on sentence. But if you... He says, stand therefore, and then having, having, having... But if you look at the core of the sentence, he's basically saying, stand therefore praying. Stand therefore praying at all times. And I think by saying that, what he, he's saying that we take our stance in spiritual warfare by praying. We take our stance against demonic forces by praying. I also want to point out how focused Paul is on telling us to pray for each other. You know, making supplication for all the saints. And to stay alert. I think we should be staying alert and praying for each other so that we realize when each other needs prayer. When someone else is under, you know, a demonic attack. Um I want to read another testimony from a different book. So this is from Sam Storms book Understanding Spiritual Warfare. And in his book Understanding Spiritual Warfare, Sam Storms shares a personal experience where he was going under a strong demonic attack just before he was about to start a new position as president of Grace Training Center. Uh, at the church in Kansas City. So the testimony is kind of long, so I kind of um, shortened it a bit. But anyways, he says, as we were traveling uh, to Kansas City, oh, no, wait. All right. So, yeah, as he was traveling to Kansas City, he came under sudden and deep depression that was clearly a demonic attack. Let me read some quotes. A dark cloud of deep depression began to descend on my mind. To this day, I find it difficult to explain. Never before in my life had I experienced even the slightest measure of depression. I'm not even sure depression is the most accurate term to describe what I suddenly felt. The word despair and sheer terror would be more appropriate. As I met several of the staff members at that church and shared a meal with them, I struggled to focus as my mind was filled with countless irrational thoughts about what this move would entail. I slowly found myself persuaded that this would be the most damaging and regrettable decision of my life. Every reason not to go to Kansas City suddenly took on dire and seemingly destructive proportions. As we made our way to the airport, it suddenly dawned on me that the only way out of this mess was to commit suicide. Yes, I know that sounds extreme and irrational. Of course it was. But I now know, or I know now, that Satan was seeking to take my life. I found myself looking in the side-view mirror of the car, hoping to find the traffic to our right heavy and threatening. My hand was literally on the door handle as I prepared to open it and jump to my death. I struggled this day to accurately describe what I was feeling. It was a strange mixture of depression, despair, hopelessness, and fear. Death seemed the only solution. The only reason I didn't open that door and end my life was that God's grace intervened. The Holy Spirit stayed my hand. Never before nor since have I even remotely considered suicide. In fact, I struggled to understand how anyone could contemplate taking their own life but now I knew what they felt. We made it to the airport, but the temptation didn't stop once we arrived. I paused long enough to call my wife on the phone and tell her what was happening. Neither neither of us can recall the content of our conversation, but she prayed fervently for me before she hung up. She immediately shared this with our 14-year-old daughter, Melanie, who spent the next hour or so praying for me. By the time I landed in Oklahoma City, the dark cloud had lifted and my reason returned to me. All thoughts of taking my life vanished. When I arrived back home in Admore, I discovered taped to my bedroom door a handwritten note from Melanie telling me of her love and how she was praying for me. And yes, in case you were wondering, I accepted the offer and moved to Kansas City in August of 1993." So this wasn't a case of indwelling demons, but this was a strong demonic attack because they didn't want, demons didn't want Sam Storms to be walking in the will of God. But prayer was God's means of victory in this instance. Prayer is how um, God delivered him. Anyways, uh, the next one I want to talk about briefly, why deliverance and spiritual warfare are important. They're important because demonic forces are real, and we need to be prepared to fight against them. Let's look at 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter is telling us to be on the alert because demonic forces are real but by being alert, we can withstand them, we can oppose them, we can have victory over them. Let's also look at Ephesians 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul is saying that this is our war as Christians. It's against uh, the forces of evil in the heavenly places. So if we're not participating in it, we're in a war that we're not participating in. That's a problem. That's generally not a good strategy for a war. Probably the least advisable thing you could ever do in a war is to do nothing. But that's what a lot of us do. That's what a lot of Christians do. You know, the other reason uh, participation in spiritual warfare and deliverance are important is because so many people are experiencing demonic oppression that they could be easily set free from and aren't even aware of oftentimes. Not all addictions are caused by demons, but some are, and there's a lot of people who don't get set free from them. Not all emotional issues are caused by demons, but there's some that are, and a lot of people don't get set free from it. Not all mental issues are caused by demons, but there's some that are, and there's a lot of people who just never get set free from it. But they could be. If we were more aware, if we were more alert, if we prayed more for discernment of spirits and used the authority that Jesus gives us. So in conclusion, all Christians should participate in this battle. We should all participate in deliverance and spiritual warfare. We should all be on alert. We should all be taking up the armor of God and in prayer. This is something we should seek to be a part of. This isn't just like some sad circumstance where there's big bad demons and nothing to do about it. These are the enemies of God. And God does not lose to his enemies. God's people will not lose to God's enemies. But we have to participate. So let's close in prayer, and then we'll get to our communion meditation. Dear Lord, thank you for the authority you give us. Thank you for the power you give us. Thank you that you will give us discernment of spirits and you give us authority over demons. We pray that we would use that and we pray that you would grant deliverance to us and deliverance to those around us, Lord. We pray that you would give us wisdom about what's demonic and what's not. We pray that you would help us to be level-headed and reliant on you and we pray that you would use us for the expanding of your kingdom, amen. Today's communion meditation is from Luke 18 verses 9 through 14. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners unjust adulterers or even like this tax collector i fast twice a week i give tithes of all that i get but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his chest saying god be merciful to me a sinner I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I want to point out that Jesus said this one, this tax collector, went down justified rather than the other. He's saying that the Pharisee went to his house not justified before God. Jesus didn't say that he was lying. Jesus didn't say that he didn't fast twice a week or that he didn't give tithes out of all that he got or that he wasn't an adulterer. Jesus doesn't deny any of the things he said. Nonetheless, he was not justified before God. The gospel is not the good news that God is willing to accept people who try hard and do good. That is not the gospel, that's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God came in the flesh and died to justify complete and utter sinners who see their need for his grace. When we come to Christ, we must understand that there is nothing that we have done, will do, or can do to deserve life. Our only hope of escaping hell and condemnation is Christ. And Christ requires that any expectation that we have to be justified before God be based on his death and his grace and nothing else. So let's praise him as we come to the table.